we're talking about our three uh, core values of discipleship, the model that we follow here at First Baptist. We preached on this uh, a year ago, the first Sunday and second Sunday, and as a series, we preached on this last year, and I went back and I looked, looked that one up to see which direction we went with it. I wanted to make sure that I didn't just repeat myself, but uh, this, this week we're looking at exalting Jesus. Our, our discipleship model is, we call it E3 for short. It's exalt Jesus, equip the saints, and engage the world with the gospel. That's what the three words mean. We're exalting Jesus. We're worshiping him. That's, that's what exalt truly means. And last year, we actually looked at the definition and what does worship means. Worship comes from the old English word that is worth-ship. And so it, it, means, it means that we are assigning worth to something. In this case, we are assigning worth to God. We are assigning worthiness to Jesus. And he really is worthy. And this week, as I looked at the sermon, and I looked at, and I studied, and I, I prayed about, and, and we went through and walked through the valley of the shadow of death this week with Kelly, and part of my mind went other places. Part of my mind went to really looking at some of the aspects that we can look to Jesus and say, in those times, why do I worship? And I worship him because of the way he is in our lives in these moments. But, but really, it, it all boils down to more than that. And there are so many things that we could say about Jesus being worthy that this could truly be a three-hour sermon. Relax. It's not. I've just turned my timer on to make sure it's not. But there are so many things that we can, there is no, we cannot exhaust what it means for Jesus to be worthy in our lives. But in the New Testament, we find four different Greek words that are used and that are translated often as either worship or another word that explains that definition. The first word is usually translated as serve. It refers to an act of service or it refers to paying homage. So the sense is to worship God, worship Jesus by serving him on a daily, regular basis. That doesn't, that doesn't mean serve him in the church, which it, you can and you should. We, we sometimes when we talk about we serve God, we serve Jesus, we automatically take our mind to the way we participate in doing things at the church. And that's all well and good and that needs to be done. But we need to be serving him on our regular daily basis in our own personal lives. So that's the first word, serve. The second word gets translated, it means to do reverence. Worship in this manner means the individual displays an attitude of reverence toward God. It is the most often used word for worship in the New Testament. So we are not only going to serve him, we are going to serve him with reverence. We're going to have an attitude of reverence toward him. The third word for worship means to revere God. You're like, well, isn't that the same thing? Well, it's a little different. This idea of revering God is the having awe or adoration or devotion for him. This is very similar to the, what we discussed last week concerning having a fear of the Lord. Four different times. In the New Testament, this word is translated as either devote or devout. They were devoted to the teaching of the Lord. They were devout in their beliefs. And that word of devote and devout carries with it their life is a life of worship. That's why they are devoted. The fourth word means to act piously toward God. Now, don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz. 
I'm not going to tell you at the end of this service to take out a piece of paper. But all of these things, all four words, all senses of this idea come into play when we say we worship God. It's not a song service. It's not a particular style of song service. It is a lifestyle that is within us that each of us on an individual basis do in our own lives as we relate and work with God in our lives. And then we come together as a corporate body, as a family, to then do it together. Interestingly, there is no biblical prescription of how to worship. There's no exact formula. You can't go to the book of Acts or Colossians or Genesis or anywhere else and find that it says in your worship service, it needs to look like this. Sometimes I wish it would. That would help cut down on some of the uh, issues, we'll say. But there are things that are there that each service should contain. We find in the New Testament that when the first century church would come together, their service of worship would include exposition of Scripture. It would include prayer. It would include singing of hymns. So we do those things as well as others in our services as well. We know their activities in the first century worship services included giving to and helping the needy. So as a corporate body, we do that as well. What we find in the New Testament concerning worship of God is an acknowledgement of who God is and how he interacts with or how he deals with us. Our understanding of who God is combined with a proper understanding of who we are and how God has chosen to interact with us is what influences our worship of him, both individually and as a corporate body. We have to have the proper understanding. Who is God? Who is he in my life? And what has he done for me? Our level of worship is also directly proportionate to the amount of time we spend with God on our own. Sometimes that's where the rub happens. If we, all we do is come in here on a Sunday morning or if all we do is come to church in a, in a corporate gathering and we have really spent no time during the week of sitting at Jesus' feet, spending time with him, meditating upon him, then what we're doing is trying to pick up right where we left off last week and it just doesn't really work that way. This doesn't necessarily mean, we're not necessarily talking about a formal time of devotion. Those are very important. Don't hear me say you shouldn't do that. But does the rest of your daily life, when you say amen after praying during your time of devotion, do you put it away and just wait till you come back the next time? Or do you take him with you throughout the day and let God be in the details of your life as you meditate on what you've learned that morning or whenever it was you read that, maybe it was that afternoon? Do you spend time with him regularly, daily, beyond the idea of a formal time. Dr. Michael Anthony sums it up this way. He says, true worship flows out of a heart which has been touched by the realization that God is gracious and merciful toward those who have repented of their sin, that God is tender with the brokenhearted, and that his kindness, as opposed to his wrath, motivates the sinner to repentance. Let me say that again. It is his kindness that motivates the sinner to repentance. I think we spend 
so much time hollering about what we're against that we drown out the kindness of God? Is it important to stand for what you believe? Absolutely. But if all you can do is tell people why you're against things, why we're against this and why we're against that and, and, and hmm, social media posts and they're all just negative and being against, we are not sharing the kindness of God. And it was the kindness of God that drew you to repentance. It was the kindness of God and his mercy that drew me to repentance. Do we stand for what we believe? Absolutely. But maybe, brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe we need to be more vocal about his kindness and his love. You say, Keenan, you sound wishy-washy. Mm, anybody who knows me knows that's not true. We're going to stand for what we believe. But if all they hear is what we're against, then they miss the kindness of God. There is a vast number of points we can make concerning why we worship Jesus. For today, I want us to acknowledge three reasons why we say he is worthy. First off, he is God. Now, if you grew up in church, if you're in Sunday school, if you're in a seminary class or a Bible, Bible college class, if you're sitting around with your friends at a Bible study time and, you're, and someone says, you know, Jesus is God, chances are you're going to be in a moment of going, well, duh. We've known that. We know that. And the problem is we know it so well, I believe it has lost its punch. I believe it has lost and we have taken it for granted what it really means when we say that Jesus is God. Because this is the one area, one of a few areas that really separates us from other belief systems in the world. Jesus, our Savior, is God. He didn't become the son of God when he was born. He didn't begin to exist as the son of God at his birth in Bethlehem. He has always existed as the eternal second member of the Trinity. He has always existed as the son of the eternal God. But he did not become named Jesus until he was born in Bethlehem. But he's always existed. That's why John tells us in John 1.1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God. So we have to keep that, those synonyms correct as we follow the rest of this study. When you, when sometimes I'll say God, sometimes I'll say Jesus. They're one and the same when we say that. So look at, excuse me, look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Here's where we're going to hang out for just a moment. Verse 15, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you're an underliner, if you're a circler in your Bible, would you underline and circle all the different times the word all shows up? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All. We understand what that means. It's everything. There is nothing left out. That includes you. That includes creation. That includes angels. That includes demons. That includes Satan. That includes anything that we can come up with that has been created, was created by him because he is 
God. He is the creator. It says he's the image of the invisible God in verse 15. Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. We can't see God, but when Jesus walked this earth, the disciples, the people who interacted with him, saw God in the flesh. It says he is the firstborn of all creation. Dr. Clinton Arnold states that what Paul had in mind here was the rights and the privileges of a firstborn son, especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. This, this is how the expression is even used of David in Psalm chapter 89. And he says in verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Sometimes I think because we don't have a monarch, we have a president, we don't have a monarchy, monarchy we don't have royalty. We kind of have missed the symbolism that really goes with the idea of calling Jesus our king of calling Jesus the son of the king. Because it, it, we miss the fact that we bow to the king. We miss the fact that we kiss the ring of the king. We miss the fact that, that the king deserves all of our homage that we give. We, don't, we live in a free country with free rights and free speech, and we can speak directly against our president, and we can speak directly against our leadership, and we can do those kinds of things. And there is an uh, innate lack of respect in the fact that we can do those things toward those who are in leadership ahead of us. But in their culture, when you say Jesus is the son of the king, you have in mind that he is the next in line, that he is the one. And then as we move even further and we say we are sons of the king, we are daughters of the king. Do you understand what that really means? You know that if God is, if God, is God and he is, and if Jesus is the son of God and he is, and if we are adopted into the family as sons and daughters of God and we are, then if God was not eternal, if he did cease at some point to be, we would be in the line of succession. Now, I know me and I know some of y'all and I, I don't want Taylor being in the line. I don't want him ruling the universe. I don't want, I don't want Chuck ruling the universe, right? I, I don't want me ruling the universe. I want God and Jesus as his son. So he is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect, exact representation of who God is. And then in verse 16 and 17, we find out that Jesus is not only the agent, but he is the ruler and the sustainer of all creation. Let's look at verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He was the agent. He was the, he is the creator. What do we mean when we say that? What does it mean that Jesus, that God is our creator? God is God. God, Jesus is God. The Trinity is hard to explain, but we get it. So what do we mean when we say he is our creator? Does it not prove true that the one who created has dominion and rule over everything he created? He is fully in charge of not only this world and this universe, like we talked about last week, the idea of a macro view of God versus a micro view of God. We can't really start in saying he is in control of all the universe and this world and everything in it and all of nature. That's fine. But what about your life? Is he in charge of your daily life? 
Do you give thought to the way he would have you get dressed in the morning? Are you wearing what God would have you wear today? Well, I hope so. Are you going about your daily life with God, knowing God's in the details and he is talking about, he's talking to you and through you when you raise your children? Are you showing them the picture of who God is in your daily life? And, you're, and, 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 and God is more than just something you do on the weekend, on Saturday or Sunday, that God, God in what we do is he's actually in charge of our home. That's the micro view of who God is. And you understand he is the creator of you and your home and your life. And not only is he sustaining this world around us, he is sustaining you in the hard times. It doesn't matter what that hard time is. This week we saw hard times as we walked through the valley of the shadow. This week we heard of hard times as people were going through health issues. This week, we've in, in, been involved with folks who are going through hard times for various reasons. Their marriage is struggling. Their finances are in trouble. Their job is at risk. There's all these things going on. And you understand God is not simply the agent of creation when it comes to all this world around you. He has sustained you exactly where you are. Sometimes we lose track of what it really means that he is our creator, that he is God. He is the almighty creator of everything. And we worship him because he is God. But we also worship him because he is the leader of our church. Our church, every Christian church, every church that claims the name of Jesus, he is the ultimate leader. It tells us in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first would be another way of saying that. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, we don't, in our general lives, we don't worship our bosses. We don't worship our earthly leaders or our supervisors and such. So simply because he is considered the leader of our church isn't why we worship him. There's more to it than that. We worship him because he is the Lord of our redemption. Being the Lord of our redemption gives him the right then to be the leader of our, of our church. All creation has been scarred by the fall, by the sin of man. I know there are parts of, our, parts of our world that we'll go to around here in Alabama. We'll go to out west. We'll go to the beach. We'll go to the mountains. Whatever the area is that you just love to go and look at God's creation because you think it is so beautiful. Even that spot, even that area has been scarred by sin. Because it was the sin of man that brought on a global flood. This world has been damaged by sin because of the global flood. And as beautiful as it is now, imagine how beautiful it must have been before that happened. Even this earth, even nature itself cries out and longs to be new again. Look at verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
We worship Him because He has earned our adoration. He has made us new. He has redeemed us by His blood. And He is the leader of our church. And that is tied very closely then to our third point. He is the Lion and the Lamb. He is the Lion and the Lamb. If you have your Bibles open and you want to turn ahead, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I want to give you a little context of what we're looking at. The book of Revelation opens with an introduction of the one having the vision, which is John, and the one who is giving him the vision and its explanation, Jesus, the Son of Man, is doing that. Jesus has a message for his church that he leads. He, is, he has a message for seven churches in Asia Minor in particular. These churches are real churches. They were, they were in John's day. They were active. They were really there. They lay, are laid out in a natural progression of the way that a, a messenger, one, a courier who would be delivering this message to them, it is laid out in the correct order that he would go from church to church to church. So when you read it, that's not a, just a, a random order that they're listed there. It's listed there in that order for a reason. It's the natural progression. John is then, after this revelation of these churches is given to him, he is then transported in his vision to the throne room of heaven. He describes the one he sees on the throne. As we begin to look at some of these things, and we're going to have an opportunity. In fact, I know there are those who really look forward to any kind of series through the book of Revelation. I just want you to know we have one coming for seven or eight weeks as we look at these seven churches. It's going to be coming up after this three-week ser sermon series now. So come, keep coming back. Stay tuned. But I want you to make sure you understand as, as we look at this, these churches, we first have to see how the recipients of the letter in the first century would have interpreted it themselves. The message that is for them is where we start. How would they have read it? A lot of times today, we try, like to go to the book of Revelation and put it immediately in our culture and say, this is a message to the 21st century. And though it has a message for the 21st century, there is a, a message that was first to those churches. How did they read it? So we're going to look at that. John is transported in his vision to the throne room. He describes the one who sits on the throne. He describes the 24 elders, which probably are representative of the complete story of redemption, both Old Testament and New Testament. The first 12 of these elders were probably representations of the 12 tribes of Israel. The second 12 are probably representations of the apostles of Jesus Christ. The 12 and the 12 coming together, the old covenant and the new covenant, the entire story of redemption represented in these 24 elders. Four creatures are described as well. Not only are they described, but also their worship in Revelation 4, verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, those three words, Lord God Almighty, the way they are put together there in that moment, that is only done in the New Testament here in the book of Revelation. It is only right here in this book. 
There is another option, another time in 2 Corinthians where Paul uses the phrase, Lord Almighty. But that's the only other time Lord and Almighty are put together other than in the book of Revelation. What is he saying here by calling him Lord God Almighty? I feel like in the Greek, we lose a little bit. If you go back to the way it would have been said in the Hebrew, you're reading Adonai El Shaddai. The Lord God Almighty. The Almighty One is one whose controlling influence over reality is unlimited. What does it mean when we say Jesus is the creator? What does it mean when we say he is God? He is the one whose controlling influence over reality is unlimited. That phrasing is only referring to God. There is no other use of that in the New Testament referring to anything else but to God. So the angels, the, the, the creatures around the, around the throne that are praising him are saying unique and righteous and perfect. Unique and righteous and perfect. Re, unique, righteous and perfect is Adonai El Shaddai, who was and is and is to come. And the worship of these creatures spur on the worship of these elders. In verse 11, it says, worthy are you, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The elders are worshiping at the throne. The elders are worshiping this. The almighty God El Shaddai. They are worshiping him. And they are calling out that you deserve glory and honor and power. And we just said he has all the power. So what are they saying when they, who, who is supposed to be giving this glory and this honor and this power? It's us. All of creation. You understand what worship is for our, worshiping our creator. When we say we are worshiping and exalting Jesus, it's because we are commanded to do so. We are to give him all of our power, all the way we go about our daily lives, the creatures, the creation, all the power that is involved in us being alive and moving forward. It's all supposed to be for his glory and his honor, all created things. And that brings us to chapter five. 14 verses I want to read here, and we're just going to stop and make some comments as we go. But friends, this here, whew, if this don't get you jazzed up a little bit, um, I'm a little worried about you. And I might get a little happy here in a minute. But uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, here's what John says he saw. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who, who was seated? The Lord, the Adonai El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty is the one who is there on the throne. He has a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. That scroll is, our scholars tell us, is like a Roman will. There has to be an ex executor. There has to be someone who is able to open it and then do the history, the things that God has written in it to be done. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It says, John speaking, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. That idea of weeping loudly is an uncontrollable sobbing. 
It's not, he doesn't have a single tear rolling down his cheek. He's not a little upset. He is uncontrollably sobbing over the fact that no one is found in or under the earth to be able to open this scroll, to execute the will of the Father, of the God Almighty. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as, we, as you walk through Revelation, what you find is every once in a while, about three times, John hears one thing and then he turns around and sees something unexpected. He hears the elder tell him, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah who can do it. He is the root of David. He is this mighty king and warrior. He is the one who can take care of all that the Lord has called, all that God Almighty, the creator, has put in place to happen. And look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He hears lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees a lamb. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What did he say? From every tribe and language and people and nation. You know, that's us. Until the new covenant in his blood, we had no way to God. You understand if Jesus had not come, you understand if he did not die on the cross, if he did not raise from the dead, if he didn't redeem you from every tribe and nation and language, that you would have no chance. Because in and of yourself, you have nothing to offer God. Wow. Is he worthy? Absolutely. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. In other words, they couldn't number them, too many of them. Saying with a loud voice, here's their worship. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Again, as we mentioned earlier, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb to be worshipped. Those four definitions earlier. By all creation, including us. That's why we come here on a Sunday morning. 
That's why we come together as a body with Jesus as our head, with the, with the creator being uh, there to hear our worship, the almighty God who has the right to do with us as he pleases, who chose to send his son to shed his blood, to die for us. That is why we come and we lift our voices in worship. It's not a song service. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The four living creatures said, couldn't have said it better myself. Amen. Is that your view of worship? Is that the way you live your life? Let me be just transparent in front of you and say, this is not me all the time. I want it to be me. I want me, me. I want to be the person who keeps God so much in the forefront of my mind that I recognize his work around me and that I'm able to then worship him in all I do with all my strength, with all my power, with all my wealth, with giving him all the blessing and the honor and, and the glory that he deserves. I know that's who I want to be. And chances are, I believe that's who you want to be. But you are probably like me and saying, Kenan, I fall short of this. Is this the view you have on Sunday morning when you walk into this place? Or do you walk in and, and, and just go through the motions because it's just a song service? I don't want to meddle. I don't want to start calling things out. You know your own heart. But if there's issues in your own life and the way worship is done, that's between you and the Lord. But I will say this, brothers and sisters, you know me, I'm a born and bred Kentucky Wildcat fan. I'll give you a go cats every time you give me a roll tide or a war eagle. Love my cats. It came apparent to me when my son was about five years old that I was putting too much stock in the Wildcats. When we were, as you may or may not know, my wife's a Tennessee fan. Come on. What you also may not know is as big of a rivalry once upon a time in football as Tennessee and Alabama were, Tennessee and Kentucky are rivals in everything. I don't care if it's ping pong. Wildcats don't like the Vols. You understand what you, you with me? She's a Tennessee fan. I'm a Kentucky fan. Kentucky's playing Tennessee in basketball. We're sitting in the house watching it. Andrew gets bored. He's about five years old. He watches the first half. He gets bored and he runs outside to play. He comes back in after the game is over. He says, hey, dad, who won the game? I said, Kentucky won it as usual. But I said, Kentucky won it. And he looked at his mama and he goes, yeah. Five-year-old. And that hit me 
like a two-before between the eyes. And I said, whoa, now, boy, we love your mother more than we love Kentucky basketball. Would you believe I find myself rooting for Tennessee now? No, no, don't, don't clap for me. You Tennessee Vols, you just keep it to yourself. But I'm not rooting for the Vols in, in my heart. I'm rooting for my wife. There's a difference. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. If you are more vocal for whatever team you root for than you are for your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who bought eternity for you, then your priorities are messed up. Now that goes for me, that goes for you. And you say, well, Kenan, I can't handle the rest of my family. I'm not talking to the rest of your family. I'm talking to this family. That if we are going to rejoice when one another rejoices, if we are going to mourn when one another mourns, if we are going to truly worship our God and Savior, then that includes treating each other correctly when it comes to these silly sports.